I guess we can get started. So first thing is, uh, my name is Bert Lee, and I'm going to be speaking to you uh, about evidence-based medicine. So I hope that's why you're here. If you are here for the wrong place, you can, I guess, kind of quietly leave, but uh, I won't be offended. Um, I'm, I'm actually always uh, uh, interested in why in the world someone would come to a lecture on evidence-based medicine. <laughs> Um, but I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, so um, I am uh, the head of medical education, and I do global critical care. Uh, this is intensive care uh, through the National uh, Institute of Health now. Uh, and, and previous to that, uh, I was at University of Pittsburgh on, on faculty there as a professor. But, uh, but actually before that, I was at Kajabi Hospital in Kenya for a number of years. Uh, and believe it or not, evidence-based medicine is actually one of the more important skills for you, you to have, actually, for global health, because it's all about understanding what the literature says and, 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 and then ways to think about what to apply and not to apply, what information to believe, what's applicable, what's cost-effective, and so forth. Uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk to you about this. It's actually a part of a course that I teach to fourth-year medical students. It's a month-long course, so I promise I won't, I won't deliver the same amount of content in the next hour, but I'm going to give you at least a piece of that that I hope will be helpful to you. So, uh, so before I get started, uh, I kind of always like to know who the audience is here. Uh, so how many of you are, first of all, uh, working overseas, uh, some somewhere outside of America, in a uh, medical care context, medical missionaries, global health workers, however you want to identify yourself. There are a couple of people here. And so where, where do you work? Peru. Peru, okay. And then what do you do there? Nurse. Great, fantastic. And you, sir? Uh, Nigeria. Nigeria. And then what do you do in Nigeria? OBGYN. OBGYN, good, fantastic, okay. Uh, and how many of you are in training? Um, you know, medical school, nursing school, pharmacy school, that kind of stuff? bunch of you in there. And so what are you in? Pharmacy. pharmacy. You guys are all the, that's a pharmacy table? Okay, great. Uh, are, are you from one school, it sounds like? or Cedarville. Cedarville, okay. And then how about you, you guys over here? First year medical students. Uh, where again? University of Tennessee. Oh, I think you were in the, the other session. Okay, oh, okay. So you had to you had to commute from the next room. So yeah, so thanks for the commute. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, any other students? Or? Yeah, where are you guys from? We're undergrads at Calvin University. Undergrads, Okay. Are those Calvin shirts there? Or? That oh, that one is. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were wearing a uniform. Sorry. I thought you guys were saying the same thing. Great. Uh, how about anybody in residency or fellowship training? Okay. So in, in the back, what, what, what do you do? Second year of medicine. Okay. In Alabama. Okay. Is that at uh, UAB or somewhere else? I'm at med school. Okay. Fantastic. And then, uh, and then you're a GI fellow, I believe, right? Las Vegas, great, fantastic. And anyone else? Or, that's it? Okay. And, uh, and uh, anybody actually teaching evidence-based medicine, like in their schools or programs? Okay. What do you, what do you teach? I have faculty for the medicine program in Michigan. Michigan? Okay, good. Uh, which, which city or program? Uh, I live out in Michigan, uh-huh. but hopefully in more Dearborn, Detroit. Okay. Long story. Great. Okay, good. And you, sir? And I'm here to pick up about how to teach the first year medical students about evidence-based medicine. Great, okay. We've got a new course called Preparing for Professional Practice. Great. Uh, PPP, is the name of it. PPP, I like it. Okay. Uh, and uh, what, what school or program is that? Indiana University. 
Union University. Okay, great. Fantastic. Okay. Um, all right. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks for being here. So, um, so I'm going to focus on, because of time, on, on randomized controlled trials, because uh, it's considered you know, high, uh, you know, one of the highest levels of evidence. So, um, uh, but it, it's mainly a springboard to talk about the concepts that you need to understand. So I, I want to start with an obvious question that I think almost all of you understand, which is, uh, why do we randomize? What's the purpose of randomization? Anybody want to shout out an answer? Why do we randomize? Reduce bias. Reduce bias, a great answer. Okay. Any other reason? Eliminate confounding factors. I'm hearing fancy language. So what do you mean by confounding factors? Yeah, so I like both answers. They're both excellent answers. They're both true. Uh, but there's another answer that I'm looking for because there are other ways to reduce bias. There are other ways to reduce confounding. But there's uh, one thing that randomization does that better than other methods. Anybody know? It is to actually create two equal groups. Okay? It reduces bias. It reduces confounding by creating two equal groups. What do we mean by that? You get a thousand people and you randomize them. You assign randomly into one group versus the other. Let's say drug versus placebo in some cases. Idea is that except for the drug and except for the placebo, you have two identical groups. Okay? So, same age. Average age, 40. Average age, 40. 30% are, uh, let's say, non-white uh, folks. 30% are non-white folks. Okay? Ejection fraction, less than 20%. Let's say 5% of people. 5% of people. Everything that's important to the disease or the entity that you're studying is going to be comparable and identical except for the experimental manipulation, in this case, drug versus placebo. Okay? That's how you reduce bias. Okay? So let's say you want to know whether or not this drug works. Okay? We randomize to create two equal groups. They should be identical in terms of all the important factors. Okay? You don't want to have, let's say you're studying a drug that will make people into better basketball players. Okay? So what do you want to make sure that they're equal in? Height. Okay? If you've got a bunch of people my height, Probably not going to do very, yeah. You're not going to do very well, okay? So you want to equalize for height. What else? That's the only important factor. Age, okay? You want you don't want people my age on your team, right? You want people who are young, okay? What else? Gender. Yeah, so gender might matter, right? You know, so uh, so not only might you be taller if you're male, but maybe you are stronger, or, or you could lift more weights and you could jump higher. There are many things in there. But the most important part is not the stuff that you can identify, but stuff that is not yet known about what makes a good basketball player. Okay? Let's say there's something that you don't know about that makes somebody a better basketball player, but it doesn't matter because since you randomly assign them, they're going to be equally distributed. Okay? So you're creating two equal groups of both known and unknown confounders, and that's really the key. Equal groups. 
Does that make sense? All right. So once you've done that, the next important concept is this idea of concealed allocation. So, so let's say group A is going to get the drug, group B is going to get placebo. What does concealed allocation mean? Okay. You don't know which one you're getting. Okay, so that's that's similar to blinding. Okay, but actually allocation is not only do you not know which one you're getting, essentially nobody really knows, and no one can manipulate that. Okay, so for example, let's say I'm I want to sell this magic liquid to make you into a better basketball player. Okay. And so let's say I see somebody who's five foot one and 90 years old. Okay? And I'm, I'm going to say, I want this drug to work because I need to make some money here. Okay? I might not want to give my drug to the 91 year old five foot one person. Right? So then I say, okay, you know what? I have something else for you. Let me give you my phone instead. Okay, this will be my placebo. And, and let's see if my phone makes you into a better basketball player. And then let's say I get a 18-year-old person who, you know, who, who's played in the NBA. I says, well, I have a magic solution for you. Okay? So that process of assigning or allocating treatment versus placebo, that's what allocation is talking about. The assignment of, of the two treatment groups. And that has to be done in a concealed way. Okay? Concealed way. So we'll, we'll come back to that. And then, of course, the idea is then you assess objectively the outcome. So let's say in this case, uh, the pictures are showing uh, um, mortality. So if you, got the, uh, if you got one treatment and you had a lot of death here, in, in this case it's assigned to placebo, and, and you got the drug and there were very few deaths, remember you had two equal groups, and no one control which group got which drug or placebo, then you can attribute the difference in mortality to the drug. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that it's absolutely the drug. So I, so I have the important word here. It's likely due to the drug. Okay? It could always be by chance. could have been luck. But it's likely due to the drug. Okay? So these are like you know, important ingredients of a well-done randomized controlled trial. So I, think, I think most of you know that, but I just want to uh, review that. All right. So, so why do we do this? So we said that we want to balance uh, these biases. We want to balance confounders. Uh, another way to think about it is um, prognostic markers. So yeah, it's a source of bias. It, it's, a, it's a confounder. So here's a classic study by Chalmers in New England Journal of Medicine, 1983. This is one of the papers that launched the era of evidence-based medicine in the early 1980s. What they did was they looked at uh, studies. Uh, this is all for, um, for heart disease. And they looked at studies that were randomized, like we said, and allocation was concealed, like I said. Okay? So these are the well-done studies compared to non-randomized studies. So here's 57 and 43. And they asked themselves, okay, which one does a better job of having two equal groups? So they looked at it by saying, well, how often is there a maldistribution of prognostic markers? So, for example, if it's heart disease, uh, you know, diabetes is an additional risk factor for death, right? 
So they want to know, was, was diabetes equally distributed, for example? Ejection fraction is a marker, whether if it's a, uh, you know, uh, left main disease versus right coronary disease, that's also important. So all of these prognostic markers, they want to know was equally distributed. So which one would you guess had uh, less maldistribution? I just want to make sure you guys are awake here, so. Okay, it's the randomized allocation concealed, okay? So that's exactly what they found is that it wasn't perfect, but it was significantly less likely you'd have maldistribution, okay? But it's quite likely to have maldistribution if you have a non-randomized, non-allocation concealed study. And then look at the differences in the conclusion of these papers that strongly favor the experimental intervention you're almost twice as likely to find a false finding, essentially, if you had a non-randomized, non-allocation concealed study. Okay? So this is why we do randomized studies, is to create two equal groups that balances out the confounders. Are you okay with that? All right. So in other words, uh, I'm sure you've seen this, this picture many times throughout your training. So this is called the evidence pyramid, right? And at the bottom is like, uh, you know, editorials, expert opinions, and then you have observational studies in the middle, and then randomized controlled trials are near the top, okay? But what's important here is that this is not exactly true because are all randomized controlled trials automatically high-quality evidence, okay? Like I said, it has to be done well, okay? A good randomized controlled trial might be good evidence, but a poor trial is no better than expert opinion, Okay? So you want a, a way to evaluate or critically appraise in some terminologies each type of evidence. And the one that, that I'm going I'm to go over with you for randomized controlled trials is called the PICO-RAMBO method. It's uh, one of uh, three schemes that are, uh, that are commonly used. There's a JAMA series that some of you may prefer. There's uh, um, Oxford University has a separate criteria. Uh, this, is actually, this actually comes from... Um, um, uh, uh, Auckland, I think, in New Zealand, uh, but uh, they use a scheme that just simply has you use the mnemonic as a checklist, so I'll, I'll go over that checklist with you. But the bottom line is, when you have a randomized controlled trial, and you critically appraise them, you know, let's say in this case, using the Pico-Rambo checklist, if it's a high-quality trial, it belongs here. But, if it's a poor quality, it actually belongs down here. So, in other words, being able to critically appraise your evidence is an important skill that you must have. Okay? I would ask you to think about it. If you don't know how to do this, are you truly an expert? Okay? I mean, I would argue it is impossible for you to be an expert in your field if you don't know how to do this. Okay? All right. So, n- now the next question is, you said, well, you know, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> And it is, and it is tedious at times. And then you might say, you know what? The article is in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's a pretty high-quality evidence. And it is, right? It's very difficult to get your article published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So you might say, if somebody published in the New England Journal of Medicine, hasn't that already gone through the review process? Isn't it already high-level evidence? Well, I would hope so, but the un- unfortunately the answer is no, Okay. So here is one, uh, one, one way to look at this. This is a classic study by Kathleen McKibben. Um, and this article, you'd be impressed by. What she and her team did was she read, actually, 
every single clinical paper that was published in one year. Okay? Every single paper. There were 60,352 articles. Okay? This is a large team. They worked really, really hard. Okay? And they used standardized criteria to say which articles are good quality versus poor quality and which ones are clinically relevant and not clinically relevant. Okay? Now, think about this. If you are a practicing physician, let's say, or a practicing dentist or, or, or whatever, and, and you are looking at scientific evidence. Before you walked in here and, and I started presenting slides like this, if somebody were to randomly ask you what percentage of the medical literature is high-quality evidence, what do you think a typical person might say? Okay. I'm hearing murmurs mostly, but... Uh, I think I heard somebody say 23%. I'm not sure where that 23 came from, but okay, but around 23%. Any other answers? Okay. I mean, some people might think, you know, maybe 50%. Maybe if you're a skeptic, maybe less. I don't know. Yeah. But actually, what they found, it was 4,132, which is actually about 7%. Okay. So a lot of the a lot of the published literature is not high quality evidence. Okay. Now, of course, the natural thing is, okay, okay, well, that article is in the, I don't know, the Lithuanian Journal of, you know, whatever. So, okay, that's not a very good journal, okay? So, let's look at the higher quality journals. So, um, when they looked at these 4,132 articles, the good news is over half, 56%, were in the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet, okay? So, one practical tip for you to consider is you cannot read all of these journal articles, even in your own field. And, and, and I don't even try. But what I do do is I look at the, the, uh, every issue of New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet, because I know at least half of the articles that are high quality are going to come from there. Okay? And the, and the rest of it, I might look at it, I might not look at it, I might wait for somebody to tell me about it, but because of limited time, I always look at these three, though. Okay? So that might be relevant to you as well. So let's look at the higher quality ones, okay? So here is New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA and Lancet, and they found these number of articles that they reviewed. And this team had criteria that were set up ahead of time to say, is this a good article or not, okay? Now they had what they considered, uh, and this is for the field of internal medicine, sorry, uh, but, but they had stringent criteria versus less stringent criteria. So what does that mean? So stringent criteria means they're being kind of you know, extra picky. Okay? So imagine yourself, you just woke up, you haven't had your coffee, okay? and you haven't had your prayer time, and you are asked to appraise this article, you might be in a bad mood, okay? and you're going to be extra picky and cranky. Okay? So that's basically what stringent criteria is. And then less stringent is now a few hours later, you've had some coffee, you're now more awake, you've had your prayer time, you're in a much happier mood, okay? And you're going to be a little bit more forgiving of these kind of, uh, of issues, okay? So they wanted to know, of the 1,530 New England Journal of Medicine articles, uh, which, by the way, is still considered the most prestigious, most difficult, most high-quality journal uh, in, in medicine, how many of them do you think met the internal medicine stringent criteria. Okay? Let me have you throw out some numbers. What do you think? What percent? 
30%. We have a skeptic in the audience already. Okay? What else? 60%. Okay? What is that? 25. Okay? I feel like we're in Vegas here. but uh, so, um, so actually, yeah, so those are great numbers, but uh, the real answer was actually 25, but not 25%, but 25, meaning 1.6%. Okay? Uh, in JAMA, it was 1.3%. Lancet was even fewer, 0.6%. Okay, so if you are not aware, actually, you know, about 99, 98% of the articles in the New England Journal of Medicine does not meet the high quality filter. Okay, so that's why you need to appraise every article, even if it's in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, anybody know what NNR stands for? What is it? Number needed to read. What does that mean? How many papers you have to read to get your article? Yeah. What this means is you have to read 61 New England Journal articles before you find one valid study. Okay? But you have to read 175 Lancet articles to find one. Okay? Now, what if you had the coffee and the prayer time and you've had your morning exercise, you're in a great mood, and you're less stringent? Well, of course, it can be you know, a greater number that meet that filter. But numbers are not dramatically different. Okay? And then there are still in the 20s and 30s and 60s. Bottom line is, you may quibble about their methodology, and, and some people do, uh, and you may be a little bit more forgiving than some of these people. Bottom line is, vast majority of articles published in the top medical journals are filled with errors, filled with problems. Okay? And we're going to talk about what those problems are and how to think about them. Okay? Uh, oh, and, and actually, uh, this is my own field of critical care medicine. So these are the top journals within critical care. This is American Journal of uh, Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, Chest and Critical Care Medicine. Okay. Uh, how do you think this compares with the New England Journal of Medicine? Better or worse? Much worse. How worse? There was one article out of 2,642. Okay. You had to read all three journals you know, for one year to find one valid article. Okay? Again, more forgiving if you have less stringent criteria. Okay? So it's very important that you know how to appraise articles. All right. So what's the checklist? It's up here. It's Pico, Rambo, Lamps. Okay? And we're going to walk through uh, some. We don't have time to walk through every bit of this, unfortunately, because uh, we do have uh, some time limitations. But I'll try to walk through some of the ones, especially the ones that are more valuable or ones that might be more confusing. So the first part is pretty easy. I think most of you are familiar with the PICO uh, question. So P is patient population, I is uh, intervention, uh, C is for control, and O is the outcome. And then Rambo and Lamps will explain. Okay, so let's start with the PICO. So here is an example. Here's a paper by Constantinides, again, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, that's comparing one drug versus the other. Okay. So it's a lot for you to read, but I'm going to actually ask you to read it uh, for about a minute, okay? And I'm going to have you fill in in your mind what the P should be, what the I should be, what the C should be, just to illustrate what the checklist looks like, okay? So I'll give you one minute, and then I'll watch the clock go around, and uh, we'll go over it together.
Is there, is there another one on that side too or no? Okay, so I, I'm not sure we can see from, from where some of you are sitting, but... Uh, okay, um, all right, so somebody tell me what the P is. What's the patient population? 256 patients with what condition? So that mass of P, okay? So this is, not, this is not hard. It's to identify what the patient population is and what is the intervention that they're testing. What is it? Yeah, so heparin plus alteplase compared to heparin plus placebo, okay? So that's pretty much it. So they're looking at 256 people with some mass of PE, and they're looking at 118 who got alteplase plus heparin, and they got 138 people with placebo versus heparin, okay? So that's pretty simple. Now, what you want to know here is obviously the patient population that they study is relevant to the patient in front of you or the question that you're asking, obviously. You want to look at the right disease. You want to look at the intervention. is something that you understand what they did. But control is really important. You want to make sure the control is standard of care. Okay? Why is that important? Because many drug companies are famous for using substandard control groups, okay? They will use a lower dose of a standard medication to show that their drug is better than the control, okay? It happens commonly uh, if you're not careful, so you want to make sure control is truly the standard care, all right? So let's go to the O, okay? O is for outcome, and the outcome should be a primary outcome. That is, you should get one outcome that you should be looking at, and it should be clinically important, okay? So here is uh, heparin plus alteplase, heparin plus placebo. And I want you to think about this here. So here is their primary endpoint. And they have it at 13 out of 118 and 34 out of 138. There's that all-important p-value of 0.006, okay? And if you read the earlier part here, what was the primary outcome? What was it that they were looking at? Death was one part of it. What's the other part of it? Okay, so uh, it's not going to work too well if you're not uh, (laughs) reading this, sorry. It's death and what? So it's not ble- it's, a, it's a bleeding complication, but it's actually it's actually death and escalation of care. Okay. So what is escalation of care? So what, and so hopefully death is obvious. Okay. So you know so so that's easy. But they also counted you if you needed vasopressors like catecholamines. They counted you if you needed secondary thrombolysis. If you need to go on a ventilator, that was a bad outcome. If you needed CPR, that's certainly a bad outcome. If you needed surgical interventions like embolectomy, that's a bad outcome. Okay? In other words, if you died, you counted. If you required one of these unfortunate things, you counted. Okay? Now, I want you to stop and look at that. Is that a good primary outcome? Okay? So, let's ask. Is, is death clinically important? Okay? No doubt. But look at death. Four versus three. Was there a difference in death? No. Okay? How about, let's say, CPR? Is that important? Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to get CPR, right? So, so that makes sense. But zero versus one, was that different? 
If you look at it, actually nothing was really different except for what? Secondary thrombolysis. What does that mean? Does anybody have an idea what that means? You gave another drug, but which drug in particular? You gave alteplase again. Okay? Remember, half the group got what? Alteplase. The other half got what? Placebo. Okay? They both got heparin. Okay? So alteplase versus placebo. Okay? So that's the primary thrombolysis. Secondary thrombolysis is if they gave more later because they weren't doing well. Okay? In other words, what drove the difference in primary outcome? Was it death, CPR? It was secondary thrombolysis. So they're saying if you give heparin plus alteplase, you get to give less secondary thrombolysis. Are you following me? Does that sound good to you? Okay? Let me help you with some math here. I think I, I, think I did the math here. Yeah, let's, let's do some math together, okay? So, so let's say you're in this group. How many people are in the heparin plus alteplase group? 118. Do you agree? How many of them would have gotten TPA the first time? All of them, because they were assigned to them. 118. How many got secondary thrombolysis? Nine people. So altogether, how often was TPA given? 127 times. What if you were randomized to heparin plus placebo? Theoretically, you should have gotten zero alteplase the first time. But secondary was 32. So total is 32. So ask yourself, would you want to be in this arm where you get primary thrombolysis guaranteed and some thrombolysis, but no benefit in terms of mortality or CPR or embolectomy or anything else? What if you're in this arm? You would not have gotten alteplase. You, you would have gotten it if they thought you needed it, Right? but far fewer often. Is alteplase cheap? Okay. Is it safe? Does it have side effects? Who's a pharmacy student here? Is alteplase safe? It's benign, right? Not that far <laughs> Okay. So, so alteplase is a thrombolytic drug that actually can cause massive hemorrhage in some, some cases. And it's not common, okay? But there's a risk of intracranial hemorrhage, GI bleeding, etc., etc. Okay? So you can actually die from that as well. Okay? So who benefits from going on to the alteplase arm of this trial? Does a patient benefit? There's nothing I can see that a patient would benefit. Who benefits then? Drug companies. Okay? Guess who designed this study? Drug companies. Okay? And that's how they get you and that's how papers get into the New England Journal of Medicine. And they come out and saying, alteplase improves primary outcome. So, Burton, they yeah. didn't mention anything about bleeding here at all. So, actually, not in the table I'm showing you. They show you later. But, but part of that kind of an issue is a rare complication needs a huge number of people. Okay? So, the fact that, let's say, you saw only limited bleeding, 118, doesn't mean it's safe if you do this to thousands and thousands of people. So that kind of safety data you can't glean from a small study like this. Okay? Does that make sense? So, so even the New England Journal paper has this obvious flaw in design, and yet it's published, and many ERs are doing stuff like this. Okay?
move on to uh, the next portion, which is Rambo. Okay? So, uh, so Rambo, uh, although the word sounds kind of exciting and macho, it's actually not quite that exciting. Okay? So R stands for registered. Okay? A stands for allocation. And we talked a little bit about that. I'm going to explain that a little further. And then M is for maintenance of randomization. And B and O are blind or objective. Okay? There's an or there that's important, which is why they're together. Okay? So let's start with registration. If you ever picked up a randomized control trial and you didn't notice it before, in, in, the, in the top journals, there's a registration number. It says here, this study is registered number, and then, and then they give you a whole bunch of things. Okay? Anybody know what that is? Okay. It's a requirement for top journals that your randomized study be registered. What that means is you go to a website. Before you actually do the study, you say, this is my primary outcome. This is how I'm going to randomize the patients, and I'm going to analyze it this way. So you already declare how you're going to do it so that you can't change the outcome after the fact. Okay? And if you do, it's all known. So if you think, well, that sounds like a kind of picky rule or whatever, okay, there's actually a uh, well-known or commonly taught statistical fallacy in many statistics courses, and this is going to be somewhat politically insensitive, but, but, but it's actually called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. So anybody from Texas here? One person. So, so my apologies in advance, but that's what it's called, okay? But, but the analogy... Uh, that they give for why registration is, is important is they have this fictitious story of a guy in Texas with a gun, okay, and he's actually drunk as a skunk, okay, and he says, I'm the best shooter in all of Texas, okay? So he points his gun, and he's kind of, you know, he, you know, he can't even stand up straight, and he points at the gun at a barn door, and he starts shooting, okay? So there's all these bullet holes. Then after the fact, he walks over to the barn and draws the target. Okay? If you do it that way, you're going to hit your target every time. Okay? As silly as that sounds, that's equally important for randomized controlled trials. You have to say before you do the study that this is my primary outcome. This is my target. I want to reduce, let's say, mortality or mortality plus escalation of care. And you have to declare that publicly up front in in the, uh, in the registry, okay? So you have to look for this. It turns out it's, it's not important just to notice a number. If this topic is of importance to you, you need to actually type in, in these letters and look up what they actually said because quite often what they actually do and publish is different from what they said they're going to do. In other words, they are playing the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, Okay? And guess why they change their outcomes? Because it results in a positive outcome. Okay? Not because that's what they were intending to show, okay? but it favors their drug or product or whatever point they're trying to make. Okay? So look it up. All right. So the next part is A, which stands for allocation. So let me explain the allocation. So... We're doing a randomized study. The, the goal is to create two equal groups, okay? And so what you want to do is to, you want to end up 
um, with, uh, with two, two equal groups. And allocation is the process of assigning one group to a drug, one group to placebo. Um, and the patient should have equal chance of getting into either arm. Right? It should be random. Okay? So in other words, can a patient say, hey, I really don't want to be in the placebo arm. I want the drug. And that happens quite often. And if they get their choice, is that a random assignment? No. What if the mother wants it for their child? Is that a random assignment? Okay. What if the researcher, again, finds that six foot five, 18-year-old to say, I think this thing will make you a better basketball player? If the researcher chooses, is that a random assignment? Okay. That's what he's talking about. Okay. So, in other words, it should be equal and concealed. And the concealed allocation is best achieved by these methods. And so these are actually buzzwords that you want to look for. One of them is called central allocation. So you'll sometimes see these words exactly. Central web, or now, in now web, but in the old days, phone-based allocation. What does that mean? That means, you know, let's say, um, let's say Dr. Krauss wants to enroll in my study to be a good basketball player, okay? Then I can't choose, he can't choose, but what I'll do is I will identify... On a website, I'll go to a website, I'll type in his name, his age, his height, all that stuff, and then, the, and then the allocation is not by me or him or by anybody else, but computer says he's going to get this or placebo. Okay? So that's called a central process. In the old days, you would pick up the phone, and, and some unknown person in Spain would say he's going to get the placebo. Okay? Now it's done, you know, obviously, electronically. Okay? That is a concealed allocation. And that's what you want to look for. The next best thing is an idea called sealed opaque envelopes. Same idea. Typically, it's a box that has envelopes literally numbered from one through whatever. Okay? If Dr. Crouch is patient number two, he can't have envelope one. He can't have envelope three. He gets envelope two. And it's sealed. He can't peek. It's opaque because in the old days when they didn't make it opaque, guess what, guess what researchers did? They looked up at the lights and said, ah, this is placebo. Okay? So then I'm not going to give placebo to him. Okay? So, so it's, it's opaque and sealed for a reason. And then we open it and it says he's going to get placebo. Okay? So these are methods of allocating to patients so we have no control other than random process. Does that make sense? If it's not done well... It's not a randomized study. That's what randomized study means, is that it's, a, it, it, it's, it's concealed allocation, so you get two equal groups. It destroys the entire concept of randomization if you don't do this. Okay? Now, I'm stressing this issue so much because evidence shows that this is the most important source of bias. Okay? However, I've been sitting through many, many classes on evidence-based medicine, many journal clubs in residencies and fellowship, and it's rare for anyone to even mention this concept, even though this is the single most important concept to know. Okay? So make sure you understand what, what, what allocation means. Okay? So here it is. Okay? Here, here's a paper called the ARISE trial from 2014. I made it a little easier for you by putting a red underline there. This is under the methods section about randomization. It says, centralized telephone interactive voice response system that was accessible 24 hours a day. Okay? So they're talking about how randomization was done. Okay? 
you've got to look for these words. Okay? They may mean nothing to you before, but you need to understand now what they mean. Okay? By the way, most physicians skip the uh, method section. Okay? You can't do that. Okay? Actually, when I teach this, I tell them, skip the abstract, skip, skip the introduction and discussion, because that's all propaganda. Okay? Look at the method section and the primary outcome. That's the only part you should look at first. Then, then if it's a high-quality study, look at everything else. Okay? But you cannot skip the method section. Okay? All right. So let me, sh- let me show you some uh, examples of that. Here's a Cochrane review. Okay? As you know, Cochrane review is a systematic review where they look at all of the evidence it, on a particular PICO question. So here are some studies. It's, it's too hard for you to read. Uh, these, are, uh, these are trials. You know, these are individual trials that's considered high quality or low risk of bias. Okay? And these are other studies that are considered high risk of bias. So as you can see, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, six, six studies that are low risk, and one, two, three, four, five, six studies that are considered high risk. Okay? Look at the summary. If you summarize these six studies that are low risk of bias, that's the summary plot. Okay? This is the line of no effect. Okay? So if you look at the low risk of bias or high quality studies, does this drug or intervention work? It goes right through a line of one, which means it has no effect. Okay? High, high quality studies suggest that this intervention does not do any good. Okay? Look at the same topic, but high, bias, high risk of bias or poor quality studies. It shows it's over here. It does not touch the line of one, and it is suggesting that this drug is a magic pill. Okay? And guess what low risk and high risk is? Low risk is allocation concealed. Okay? High risk is allocation is done poorly. Okay? Many physicians are moved by one article from somewhere that says, you know, it works, but it's often a unregistered small trial that the, the, that the allocation is done poorly. Okay? So not all randomized controlled studies are the same. Okay? And this is, the, this is more of the same thing, uh, and, and uh, I don't think I have time to go through all of this, but this is when they're looking at individual studies, they're actually literally going through the PICO-RAMBO checklist to say whether this is a good quality study or not, okay? And then whether it's a bad study. Okay. All right, so uh, let me skip that again, and then let me go on to the next topic, which is uh, M, which is maintenance of randomization, okay? So... Um, so uh, um, this has three subcomponents. It stands for loss of follow-up, intention to treat, and equal otherwise. And the three together spells a certain word that will help you remember. Okay? That's L-I-E. And what this is referring to is we said a randomized study okay, needs to create two equal groups. Right? And that's what makes it a good high-quality study. And what that means is that the allocation was done in a concealed fashion. After you have two, two equal groups, now you're asking yourself, okay, I have two equal groups, but are they equal throughout the experiment? Okay? So, for example, let's go back to the basketball player study. Okay? It's a silly example. But let's say I have two equal groups of people, equal height, equal age, equal ability, equal gender, etc. Okay? But let's say one group that I gave my magic solution to, 
I give them nice food, I give them massages, I give them comfortable beds, I give them as much time to rest and train with the best you know, coaches and uh, they go through a rigorous exercise. The other half, let's say I give them crappy food, they don't get to sleep, they're noisy everywhere, the room smells, the bed is uncomfortable, and they don't have coaches. Okay? So even though I had started out with two equal groups, I'm not treating them the same anymore. Okay? And so that's an important concept, is now that I have two equal groups, am I treating them medically in important ways the same? Okay? So one of them is what happens if you lose patients to follow-up. Remember, I had two equal groups. But what if you lose 50% of one group? Then the group that I'm left with is no longer equal to the group on the other side. So loss of follow-up has to be minimal. You don't want to lose any. Okay, but real life means you will lose some people because they're going to they're drop out or they're going to move to another country. That will happen, but that loss of follow-up needs to be minimal. Okay? So what's considered minimal? And that takes us to another concept of fragility index. Okay? Who's familiar with the fragility index? Anyone? Maybe a few people. Okay? Uh, a few hands. So let's go over that. Okay? So fragility. So if you just take a, you know, uh, take a step back and say, do you want your scientific evidence to be fragile? Obviously, the answer is no. You don't want fragile scientific evidence. You want robust scientific evidence. Okay? So keep that in mind. And you can calculate a number to estimate how fragile your data is. Okay? So let me give you a hypothetical study. You have a drug or therapy in a control group. Let's say you have 1,000 people in each arm. Okay? There are two equal groups. And 30 people died under therapy, 50 people died under control, 3% versus 5% mortality, p-value is 0.03. Okay? Let's say this was two equal groups, allocation was concealed, great study. Okay? And it looks like that the drug works. Right? You got fewer deaths, 3% uh, versus 5%. But fragility asks is, well, how robust is this? I know we had 30 deaths and 50 but, if, but what if this was not 50 deaths in the control group, but only 49? Would that change the p-value? What if it was 48? What if it was 47? Okay, so they ask mathematically, how much change in the actual result does it take to change this p-value? So if you go through the math, here the example is, if this number had been 48 instead of 50, it would no longer be statistically significant. So what's the fragility index? It's nothing other than the difference between this number and this number. In other words, fragility index is 2. Okay? It's a pretty simple number to calculate. If you don't know, there are phone apps that, that use this. You can just Google fragility index. I'll give you a calculator. Plug these, you know, you know, plug these four numbers in. You'll spit it out for you. Okay? You can do it in 30 seconds before rounds. Okay? So, let me make sure you understand. Is a high fragility index good evidence or low fragility index good evidence? High. Okay? High. What's a bad fragility index? Zero. <laughs> it's already fragile. Okay? So, keep that in mind. Okay? So, um, so here is a paper uh, by Manny Rivers. This, you know, you know, you know, you know, uh, this is a paper that actually changed medicine for a number of years that was later disproven. Okay? 
But look at the fragility of the study, okay? Small study, first of all, 130, 133%, 30.5%, 46.5%. P-value in most people's estimates are impressively low, 0.09. Everybody was excited about this. The world practice changed because of this paper for over a decade, okay? Fragility index is that if, um, if it changed from 59 to 55, it would no longer be, no longer be significant. So what's the fragility index here? Four. Okay. So is that robust evidence? Okay. If four people had changed outcomes, it would no longer be significant. Okay. That's not very robust. This is pretty fragile. So to put this in context, here's actually an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal, not by a doctor, but by a journalist, who found out that in this paper, they reported the outcomes of 263 people. Okay. But what it turned out was that they had 25 other people that were lost to follow-up. Okay? Fragility index was what? How many people did they lose to follow-up? So what if 25 people <laughs> were accounted for with that change of fragility, with that change of the outcome? And the answer was yes. If they included it, it would no longer be significant. Okay. Again, this is not the you know this is not the Lithuanian Journal of, of, uh, of Emergency Medicine. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, it wasn't doctors who noticed this; it was a journalist who noticed this. Okay. Okay. Um, so here is a um, a graph that I asked my uh, my students and residents and so forth to tattoo in their brain. This is actually a systematic review of the current medical literature in terms of fragility. Okay? They're, they're looking at all the modern scientific evidence, and here is a fragility index of zero, and, they are, and here's a fragility index of greater than 40. Do you guys see that? What's the typical fragility index for medical scientific content? It's like right here. It's right around two. Okay? Very fragile. We have very few that are in this end of the spectrum. Okay? So the median fragility index was two, okay? And 50% of the world literature is between one and 3.5. Okay? Very, very fragile, okay? And then this is kind of even more appalling, which is the percent with a fragility index of less than one or equal to one, so one or less, zero or one, was actually 40%, okay? You have to critically appraise you have to calculate the fragility index. Okay? So here's an example uh, in the critical care world, an article by, by Papazian about the use of this drug. Uh, it was a cis-atrocurium. And again, if you calculate the fragility index, it was zero. Uh, it, but it published in the New England Journal of Medicine and then changed practice. And then they decided to repeat the study nine years later, and they found no difference in outcome should not be a surprise if your fragility index is zero. Okay? I don't understand Yeah, so that's a slightly different topic, but the, but the short answer is if you actually do the math, these numbers are incorrect. Okay? It's even, it's even more basic than the fragility index. Okay? okay? So, so actually, the one side note is I, I make my students recalculate the p-value, and not infrequently, they're, it's just wrong. Okay, so, so, so the, but, but I need to be careful here because there are some unscientific 
thinking that may emerge from this, because some people might say, well then, it looks like I shouldn't read anything, <laughs> okay? Or that I shouldn't follow anything, or I shouldn't trust anything. That's not the point either. There is scientific truth out there. It just, you just got to be careful. You have to be selective. That there are nuggets of gold, but there's also a lot of dross. So you've got to figure out what's gold and what's dross. The point is not to throw everything away. So here's an example of an article by Baden. You know, this is one of the, you know, you know, one of the more recent articles about, about COVID vaccine. 14,000 patients in each arm. First of all, these are huge studies. Okay? And, and then here is the uh, number of infections. Okay? Uh, 0.08% versus 1.31%. And then the p-value was very, very low. And if you calculate the fertility index, this is 139. Okay? And if you put this back into this graph, it's actually off the scale. Okay? It's actually one of the most convincing scientific evidence we have. Okay? I know there are, there are a lot of people with, with for, for some reason, different opinions about this. But from a scientific point of view and evidence point of view, this is one of the, this is one of the strongest pieces of information that we have. Okay, all right. Um, I'm going to skip the intended to treat, but talk about equal treatment. Otherwise, so like I said, you want to make sure that you have two equal groups, but you treat them the same way after its randomization, right? So let me give you an example of this. Okay, they should be equal at baseline. We should have created equal groups, and we should be treating them equally. So what does that mean? Okay, so equal at baseline first. This is often called table one. Okay. It's not literally table one sometimes, but almost always it is, actually. So if you look at table one, or in some cases table two, they will list one group versus the other, and they will list all the potential uh, uh, confounders. And what you want to ask is, are the ages similar? You know, it, are, are the percentage of men versus women similar? Are there, you know, the, the types of illnesses similar? And it allows you to compare side by side did I actually achieve two equal groups among important parameters? Okay? So that should be looked at, and hopefully you created two equal groups. Okay? The best way to create two equal groups besides random allocation that's concealed is to have a large study. Okay? So, for example, if I took a sample of two people okay, right here, I would conclude that everybody at GMHC are men and are Caucasian. Okay? That, that, that's just not true if you take a larger sample. Okay? So the so larger the sample, more represented it is of the truth. Smaller the sample, uh, more misleading information you can get, which is why you want a large sample. The bottom line is you want two equal treatments. Okay? And then, as I said, equal treatment thereafter. So in this study, the one group that got the ECMO, uh, you know, and the other group that got the conventional, here is a life-saving intervention besides ECMO. And if you look at this, 93% of these patients got this additional life-saving strategy, but only 70% of this group got the additional life-saving strategy. So, so in other words, were they treated equally? Okay? These group of people just got better care. So if they have a better outcome, was it due to ECMO or was it due to you know, just better care? And you can't tell if it's not equally treated. Does that make sense? Okay. So the large and, and, and the last part is the is a large uh, and multi-center studies. Like I said, uh, tend to be better. Uh, and then profit motive, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow morning, actually, on under ethics. If you're in, in, interested in, in, in hearing more more about uh, about ethics, 
Uh, but I'm going to finish with statistics, and, and, and I think somebody already asked this. So this is the, this is the illustration. Here's a paper published in Lancet. Okay, again, a very prestigious journal. So look at the outcomes here. They said that uh, their primary outcome was death or severe disability. 90 people here, 90 people here. And those who met the primary outcome, yes, was 37% versus 53%. P-value is 0.03 here. Okay? You guys see all, all these numbers here? Okay? So that's their primary outcome. That's what you want to focus on. So let's go through the math and see if this makes sense. So 33, 46, 37%, 53%. First thing I'm going to do is just use a calculator to see if I get the same numbers. Okay? And if you look at it, actually, you get 36.67%, which is 37%. So I agree with that. But for this one, I get 51.1%, not 53%. Okay? You know, this is not challenging math, and there's no excuse for these, you know, kind of errors to be there. But there's already errors in this. So I worry that these people were very sloppy. Okay? So I, I make my students redo these things. It's very easy to do. Okay? But already there is an error. Okay? Then if you look at this, the relative risk is 0.69 with a confidence interval of 0.05 to 0.97 and a p-value of 0.03. It's all listed here what you're looking at. Okay? So if you recalculate this, it turns out the risk is actually 0.717, not 0.69. So again, that's wrong. And then it's not 0.05, but it's actually 0.5. They're off by an order of 10. Okay? And then if you recalculate the p-value, it's actually 0.07, not 0.03. Okay? So some people think I'm exaggerating or I'm kidding when I, when I say you need to critically read the papers. I'm talking about the basic stuff. Okay? You don't need to be a statistician to realize that these numbers, simple, simple calculations are wrong. Okay? But that's the level of scrutiny you need in 2022. Okay? So Pico Rambo lamps, and then I'll finish with this. Uh, what I do is because there's so much literature to read, I, I already told you, I concentrate on the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet. And then the rest of it, I rely on my colleagues or some, you know, some serendipity to be exposed to that art article. But, the, but those three journals I do look at very carefully. Okay? And then if it's relevant to me, I will read it. So I will put it in an articles to read file. And then after I read it, I, if I appraise it in the manner that I just said, that's the Pico Rambo lamps, I, I literally fill this out. Okay? I highlight the different questions. So I don't know if you can read all of this, but it talks about allocation, patient population, the Pico Rambo lamps as an exact checklist. It's saying here that this study was uh, not done well. If something isn't pink, that means I don't like it. It wasn't done very well. If it's green, that means I like it. It was done well. So I'm literally going down the Pico Rampo uh, lamps list. And then here it is right here, high risk of bias because of all these pink areas. Okay? So I've been in the habit of doing this for decades, and this is exactly what I teach my, my, my students uh, to do. It takes some training. It takes effort. But every one of them is able to do this uh, after the course. Okay, so I invite you to think about this and ask me any questions. I think our time is up. We have about one minute left, so I'll stop here and see if anybody has any questions. Yes, sir? Well, I mean, the New England Journal is like, you know, impact factor, you know, that's incredibly high. So, yes. Yeah, so 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the higher impact factor have higher quality, but if you remember, the highest impact factors, New England Journal, etc., are still on the average poor quality. Okay. So we have to separate specialty journals. Yeah. Well, so 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 my observation is specialty journals are ex- are even more problematic than than New England Journal of Medicine. Okay. So actually, I don't read critical care journals routinely. Okay. Occasionally, there might be a paper that that's worth reading, but it's so. The, the amount I have to read to find that one is so low that it's not worth my time. So I'll, I'll wait for some other colleague to come through the pain says, hey, this is a great article, you should read it. And then I'll read it critically, and then I may agree or disagree with my colleague, but at least, you know, at least I, I've been tipped off on it. Yes? So, um, so up-to-date is incredibly convenient, incredibly popular, but even the publishers admit it's not necessarily up-to-date. Okay, so, so, so parts of it is great. Uh, some people who are numerate and people who are evidence-based, when they write it, of course, it's going to be high quality. But I would also say there are lots of authors who are experts in whatever field, cardiology or pulmonary or whatever. They are experts for sure, no doubt. Okay, but they may not understand some of these principles and they will mix good evidence with bad evidence. So I, I, I am... Uh, I, I might look it up as a quick review of the topic that I know nothing about, but I rarely use that as an authoritative source. Yes? Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about guidelines tomorrow if you're uh, interested in, in hearing the rest of it. But, uh, but again, guidelines are similar. Number one, there's a strong conflict of interest among panelists who make up guidelines. That is, there's a lot of industry representation. It's not automatically bad, but there's certainly some question marks about, you know, about their motivations, you know, both conscious and subconscious. And then, again, not every panelist – I mean, I, I mean, panelists are true experts in one sense, okay? but they're not necessarily evidence-based medicine experts always. So some guidelines are great. Some guidelines are very poor. So you have to be discriminating. Yes? Yeah, so uh, that's a larger question, but uh, you know, I think many studies have shown that the, the, the scientific review process is imperfect, right? So, you know, so, I, so I'm a reviewer for a certain journal, and the shortest, okay, and, then, and then if you didn't know, the reviewers don't get paid. This is a voluntary work that we do for good of science and for good for society, okay? So we're all doing this on a voluntary basis, number one. But the fastest way for me to get my work done is to say, good job. Okay? If I read it and I find problems, then I create work for myself. Because now I have to defend it. I have to write a very polite language, but explain all this stuff who may or may not understand what I'm talking about. Then we go back and forth, and there's a million emails, uh, and there's frustration on the other end because they think you know, you're being nitpicky. And there's literally hours and hours of work. Huh? So, you know, so, so we're all doing this for, for you know, good of science, uh, but it's an imperfect process. Okay? Yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you, guys. Uh,